everyone, this is Tony Dow, and welcome to the official OCPHA podcast, where we interview our pharmacy professionals about their journey into their specialized fields. And today we'll be speaking with our special guest, Dr. Drew Yuang, on her role and how she got into the world of pharmacy. So thank you again for being on the show, Drew. How are you doing today? Thanks. Good. Thanks, Tony. I really am honored to be on your podcast. Oh, the honor is all ours. So, so just for our listeners, can you kind of just give a little bit of an intro about yourself? Sure. Let's see. I grew up in um, around the Torrance area, and I went to pharmacy school and graduated. And after I graduated, I did a two-year residency in psychiatric pharmacy, and that was you know, a field that I was really passionate, that I'm really passionate about. At the time, I had really dynamic lecture and professor who taught about schizophrenia and about all the different types of mental health disorders during our CNS module. And I just knew it was something that I wanted to do. So I decided to pursue a two-year residency. Shortly after that, during my residency, I actually worked in a clinic uh, right in the middle of Skid Row. It was called True Center for Community Health and enjoyed my residency so much that I wish that I could have stayed. I mean, but, you know, we had some pharmacy billing issues and because of that, they weren't able to hire me. As a result, I had to look for other job options within psychiatric pharmacy and I ended up in a county setting up north in Alameda County. Alameda County is actually like the fifth largest county in California, and it includes Oakland, Berkeley, and the surrounding areas up north. So I was there working under the auspices of the medical director's office, doing a lot of quality improvement initiatives. So we actually had around 50 different behavioral outpatient behavioral health clinics. So I would visit a lot of these clinics. Uh, I would do a lot of random chart reviews benchmark the prescribers against their peers, um, and then also let them know what their prescribing habits look like. If they were prescribing medications that were dangerous, of course, I would then go ahead and let them know. And then if they were like, let's say, prescribing outside of the normal prescribing guidelines, I would let them know as well. And so that that was sort of like my day-to-day role as well as, you know, once or twice a week, I would also work together with the psychiatrist doing comprehensive medication management at a crisis response program there. I was in Alameda County about five years before I joined industry, and I currently work at Otsuka Pharmaceutical. It's a in the drug development and commercialization side of the house. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, for your experience back at, you know, Skid Row during your residency and then going to Alameda County, was, a, you know, the patient population similar or was it kind of different? And, you know, if it was different, like, I guess, how did your care change the way that you, you provided care to the patients at Skid Row during your residency versus the ones that you were working with in Alameda County? Oh, geez, that's a really good question. So, I first of all, I want to let the audience know that when I was a resident, I TA'd a lot of different groups and I actually TA'd Tony's group. <laughs> that's how we know each other. But so when to get back to your question, when I was working in Skid Row, it, it was so different because here we were in class and we were taught about the DSM-5 and the different discrete diagnoses for like, this is what schizophrenia looks like. This is what bipolar disorder looks like. And then I was thrown into the Skid Row area where approximately 60% of the patient population that we saw had mental health conditions. And it, it was just really startling because... I, w- I was trying to apply what I had learned in school and basically figure out 
what were their diagnoses. I mean, they came in with specific diagnoses, but many of the patients that I saw didn't fit any discrete diagnosis. I mean, they would be, they would endorse that they would be hearing voices, but then when you probe further, and it didn't seem, I mean, they were too linear. Like they were, uh, they didn't have any like negative affect. They were able to tell me events that happen in a sequential fashion. If they didn't have a schizophrenia flavor to them, even though they came in and the diagnosis said something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective, which were most of the patients that came in. And then when you probe further, you hear, well, what sort of voices are you hearing? And then they would tell me like, you know, I had one specific example where he said, it's the voice of my foster mother who used to beat me. So then I realized rather quickly that the homeless patients that I was seeing were suffering from a different type of mental disorders than the ones that were classically taught at school or even the ones that I would see in my rotation in the inpatient psychiatric hospital. Many of the homeless patients that I was seeing were suffering from childhood trauma and there were, you know, the sequelas and consequences of the childhood trauma that continue to live on and how that impacts the rest of their lives. So that one person that I stated earlier as an example, he was basically shuttled from one foster home to the next, and many of the foster homes ended up abusing him. And as a result, he fell into drug abuse, and he basically, he, you know, disclosed to me that he used crack cocaine for over two decades and that basically ruined his life. And when I met him at the homeless clinic where I was working at, he was trying to sort out his life. He was in his 50s. He had since entered recovery and quit substances. And he was trying to gain housing programs and trying to kind of put the pieces of his life back together. But he was, you know, predominantly suffering from depression, Plus, he was hearing voices. But again, he was initially diagnosed as schizophrenia or schizoaffective when, when that wasn't the case. But he was sort of the stereotypical clients that I would see at that particular clinic where a lot of people just suffering from really horrific trauma that was difficult for me to imagine, and yet they've experienced. When I went to county, it was a similar set of population, but within the county setting, they had specific filters. So they would, in order to get into the county system, you had to, you had to, you know, like, let's say you had unipolar depression, like you're suffering from depression. Well, if you're suffering from depression, you wouldn't have gotten into our, the county program at the time because it was reserved mainly for the severely chronically ill, mentally ill patients. So, Though many of the patients that I saw, many of them had the classic, you know, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder. Though in that setting, I saw more more of the classic types. Although to make matters more worse or confusing, you do have some of the homeless population in there. Many of them also suffer from childhood trauma and drug abuse at the same time. Wow. So, you know, for the homeless setting, I, I know this is not like specific to psychiatric, but I think it may be exacerbated by those that have psychiatric conditions. But, you know, for the ones that are homeless and then they come in for follow up and things like that, how do you kind of, you know, like, so they, so they get medication, right? And if they're homeless and they yeah. don't have, you know, if they don't have a clinic to go to or they don't have like a shelter to go to, how do you kind of address that challenge of like, you know, they don't 
have a place to store their med. They don't really have an address that you can reach out to them if they missed their appointment. It, I, that's kind of like a challenge I was always like curious about, like how someone that works in that setting would handle for the for the patients that they see. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I was fortunate. I mean, within that homeless clinic, clinic, it was sort of like a wraparound care. You know, the homeless clinics that I worked at, it used to be like a one institution and then the the city poured in $2 million to make it, they completely renovated and changed it. So it was basically, they could get access to nearly everything under one roof. So they could, they had dentistry, optometry, everything, as well as social workers and that worked to support their housing goals. So you would have, we even have like a separate person a separate psychiatrist that came in to evaluate them for SSI and SDI, you know, whether they qualify for it or not. So because of that, we had a separate social worker that really worked hard to give them access to shelters and housing. So I never, I, I never had problem because they were already plugged into all of those services. I didn't have problem trying to contact them. They either had a cell phone number or they or I knew the shelter that they were currently residing in, or in the, you know some of the lucky cases where they got Section Eight housing, like I knew where they were housed. So we, you know, the whole team worked pretty well at capturing, sort of like providing the safety net and, and capturing the homeless population and tracking them. Oh wow, that's really cool. So um, you know, just switching gears a little bit, you said that you're working at Atsuka now. So what is your role for your job today? Sure. So. I am a CNS medical science liaison. What that means is like, I mean, you can Wikipedia medical science liaison. It took me a while to kind of figure out beyond the definition what the work duties actually entailed. But basically, I worked for a pharmaceutical company. And then, so if you know pharmaceutical companies, they have many different branches to the house. Right? So you have the ones that we are most familiar with would be the commercial team. So basically, they're the sales reps the boots on the grounds that knock in doctor's offices and promote the drugs. I'm not in the commercial side of the house. I work in the medical affairs side of the house. In the medical affairs side of the house, you sort of have like the in-house people that work on creating materials to distribute to the public in case the quest- there's questions that arise. And then there's also the medical strategic division. And then there's the field medical affairs. And that's that's my role is I'm a field medical affairs person. So basically, I go out and I disseminate scientific information specifically to key decision makers or key opinion leaders. So if they have any questions regarding the drug or disease state, then I'm the person that is basically the boots on the ground speaking to them about the scientific data, having scientific conversations with them to better explain the product. So a lot of the times you have the sales reps that come in and the physician may have, the clinician may have these advanced level questions that the salespersons are not equipped to handle. So then they deploy our side of the house to basically where we have the knowledge and the background to kind of go through the step-by-step scientific discussions to be able to answer their questions to their satisfaction. You just talked about, you know, having the background for uh, being able to answer that too. So I was also curious about your experiences, you know, at both, you know, Skid Row and Alameda County. How have those kind of shaped your um, experience into being able to take on a role like the MSL role? (laughs) So actually my job in Alameda County had a lot of overlap with my current role as medical science liaison because in Alameda County, I was 
a part of the PNT committee meetings. And at times I would actually review the drugs, whether or not we should include it within our formulary at the time. So I would do a lot of the research outlining the pros and cons on whether or not we should include this new particular drug into our formulary. And then at the same time, I was also responsible in educating the prescribers uh, within Alameda County. So, and I would do so in a various different roles. So the first that I mentioned earlier would be the the chart review, where I would conduct the random chart reviews and I would sit down with the prescriber and sort of explain the results of the chart review with them um, and then explain the benchmarking against their peers with them. But then on the other hand, during these set meetings, we would have, we would meet every month and we would put on different educational programs. So though I remember, you know, I, I did a few that was like one where we reviewed sedative hypnotics and then they were new, you know, this was back in 2010. There were like new journal articles that came out that saying sedative hypnotics maybe may have some side effects that were previously unknown. And so we had gone through the, the journal club article together. I'd summarized the journal article to them and then we had a really great discussion. And then there were several learning points to take away from that. So I was already in that role of providing a lot of disease state education to the prescribers and sort of in that in that educational role throughout not just the prescribe with the prescribers but the entire mental health community. So I was going around talking to social workers to Everyone within the mental health wraparound team. So that could be social workers, that could be psychologists, that could be, that could include. And then in often case, I, you know, I was part of NAMI, so I would go in and I would speak with the patients and then family members of the patients as well. So I, I was kind of already used to that role. And then, so then the, the transition from a clinician in in Alameda County, um, senior clinical pharmacist from there, the medical science liaison, there was there were actually a lot of overlap. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, going from Alameda County into the industry is like a big change. So uh, I was also curious about like how did you kind of get into it? Yeah, so I was I was headhunted the call from a headhunter saying that he, he saw my LinkedIn LinkedIn profile and he thought I would be a perfect fit for my current job. And this was approximately five years ago when I got that call. I was intrigued, but at the time, I had a very narrow view of pharmaceutical industry that sort of like classified it as the dark side. <laughs> so initially, I had told him no. But then after I did more research and after I talked to a lot of the faculty members that I respected, they actually pointed out a RAND study that showed without the pharmaceutical companies how our lifespan would be shortened by over a decade. And it got me to thinking a lot about how in places where we were chronically under-resourced, like county facilities or Skid Row area where I was working in, how great would it be to be able to kind of make this widespread impact and then have the resources to back it up? So, you know, I I decided to take a leap of faith and joined industry. I, I figured okay, you know, it would always be like one of the curiosity that I that I needed to, to scratch. Like it would, the itch will always be there. So I, I told myself, okay, why don't I just try this and see if it's something that 
I would like if it's something that I've been seeking for, but maybe just, you know, at that point, I didn't know what I didn't know. So it did require that leap of faith, but I'm really glad that I took it. Awesome. Awesome. So it's been about, you know, five years now. And I guess like, uh, I'm curious to know what has been your most rewarding experience in your current role? Yeah. So my most, there, there were many, many aspects of the jobs that I find so rewarding. There are many events that happen, but if I had to to think of one that's pertinent to this discussion, to this podcast and how it affects us as pharmacists. I'm currently involved in and I was involved in the Los Angeles County whole person care movement. Basically, as part of the whole person care movement, the state um, has invested. So they have like a one-to-one matching state dollars matched with federal dollars that amounted to $1.5 billion that's allocated to help Los Angeles County specifically. And they're targeting vulnerable patient populations. So there were six different buckets that they're thinking of, and I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm not going to remember all of them. But just to give you an example, they were targeting the homeless population, those that were discharged from the jail or prison system, you know, pregnant, the mentally ill, a lot of the, this, what they consider the vulnerable patient population and trying to address social determinants of health, meaning uh, if they need housing, if they need to be plugged into the right care, to the right primary care medical home, then they would have a team de- designed and designated there to plug them into wherever they need to go, whatever services that they need, so they don't fall through the cracks. And then hopefully after these four years, where the after the grant expire, then the work can live on and continue on and continue to be sustained through the managed Medi-Cal program. So as I heard, I actually attended a, um, a seminar where I knew this whole person care was going on. And I, the department of the head of the Department of Public Health was talking about this initiative. And I noticed that pharmacists was not a part of it. Separately, I had been in contact with the director of pharmacy at the Department of at DMH at the time, Department of Mental Health with Los Angeles County. And he wanted to kick off his initiative in incorporating pharmacists more into like these clinical roles throughout county because even though Los Angeles County is so huge and collectively within the behavioral health area, they serve about, about a million patients. They only had about two to three pharmacists working behind the scene just for DMH, which is, you know, they serve approximately 300,000 patients. So when I heard what he was trying to do, I basically told him like, hey, you you might want to get connected with whole person care because they're, it sounds like they're trying to achieve the same thing without the pharmacist. What if we combine? So I actually worked with the Associate Dean of Clinical Affairs at USC School of Pharmacy and then the director of pharmacy over at LA County DMH. And then we brought them into a meeting with the people in charge of whole person care and kind of kickstart this idea that let's have pharmacists be involved in this crucial piece of medication management for these high-risk population of patients that's targeted by whole person care. And as a result of that collaboration and that project, DMH was able to hire 14 clinical pharmacists, 14 new clinical pharmacists into the DMH work group. And they're continuing to hire to this date. So if any of you listening are interested, 
and you have a behavioral health background or ambulatory care background, please feel free to contact me and I can connect you with the right person. But I mean, so they're, they're going basically from two to three pharmacists to, you know, 14 additional pharmacists, which is, which I consider it a potential great success. And then they're going to incorporate one pharmacist at every hub, every center of the whole person care initiative. So every region will have a clinical pharmacist designated to help with the effort. Wow, that's that's really, really cool. So um, it, did this just start? It, well, it started, we're actually in the last year of the grant. So it was supposed to have started 2016, but the clinical pharmacy part didn't start until just recently, approximately two years ago. Oh, okay. Wow. So thank you for sharing that. I'll be putting your email later uh, in the show notes too. So if people wanted to um, reach yes, out to please. you. Yes, please. You know, for another thing, another question about, you know, people generally have is uh, since you've had a lot of experience in, you know, doing a residency in clinical psychiatric pharmacy and being a psychiatric pharmacist before you even went into the industry, what, what kind of advice would you give to people if they had an interest in, you know, either industry or um, psychiatric pharmacy? Like what kind of advice would you give to them if they wanted to try to get into that field or navigate themselves towards it. Yeah, yes. I actually just spoke to a person who didn't have any relevant background and she was trying to get into industry. That's more difficult and, and I probably wouldn't talk to me about that. I wouldn't know how to give advice in there because I've never tried to break into industry essentially because I was headhunted. So I don't know how you can make your resume more attractive. I know that when I talked to the headhunter, he basically said that if you're trying to break into industry, there are several groups of peers of people that are more attractive than others where, where he recruits from. So the, the tier one that are the most attractive are people with an existing industry experience. So if you have an existing medical science liaison experience in a relevant field, it's so much more easy to jump around as you can imagine. The second tier that he considers desirable are was basically people like me who had the cl- relevant clinical experience. So they're, they may not have ever worked in industry before, but let's say you're working at the VA or working at Kaiser, like as an ambulatory care pharmacy, and let's say it's like an asthma medication or diabetes medication, and you have relevant field experience, that would be the second tier that he pulls from a second most de- desirable tier. But it, let's say you have nothing. Let's say you're working in community pharmacy. I'm just giving it up like an example. So, so you're working in community pharmacy. You're completely exhausted. And you're like, there's got to be something better. And then you're looking into industry. And the more you look into it, the more you're interested. Then you sort of have to like start from scratch. And I wouldn't know what to do from there. I think there's like several things on the LinkedIn that you can join. I would say there's one called Medical Science Liaison Society. That might be a good resource to look into because they're always coming out with like publications on like how do, how do you break in and then you can get connected and network with people that also want to break in and people that are already in the field. Uh, the second good one that I know is something called like if you're a woman, there's Healthcare Business Woman Association, HBA. Uh, which I just joined recently, and they have kind of like these threads. You know, we network with each other, and we try to help each other out the best that we can. And then just recently, there was a thread that said, you know, I'm a PhD working in a lab, and I'm trying to break into industry. How do I get started? And then I just recently saw someone respond that said, I was a PhD too, and I got into the industry. And then, you know, she could help to serve as her mentor or something like that. So I would say 
look at LinkedIn or any other resources that you can pull from and try to contact, even if you have to cold call people that are already in industry. I see a lot of my PhD colleagues that are super good at this. For some reason, us pharmacists are not that great at it, to be honest, because I've had people contact me on LinkedIn that want to break in, and majority of the people that are super proactive are the PhDs. <laughs> so I would say do that. Like Go through it, and if you respect someone who's an MFL and you're trying to break in, ask for their advice. And then secondly, the other part of your question is, like, how what would you do if you're trying to get into psychiatric pharmacy? The psychiatric pharmacy route is a lot more linear and self-explanatory and kind of like it's already, there's already a path, right? So if you definitely know you want to be a clinical psychiatric pharmacist, you do the two-year residency. It used to be like one year back in 2006. And then in 2007, I think they changed it to two years. So you just got to do the extra investment, do the two-year residency wherever you get in. Hopefully you get into the program that you want. But I know that it, it is extremely competitive to get in. And if you don't get into any of the residency programs, but you still want to be a psychiatric pharmacist, don't fret because you can always figure out how to do it. Like you could, if you're working at the VA, you, I know that a lot of people, if they're looking for psychiatric pharmacists, they don't necessarily look for the background because there's literally only a little bit over a thousand board certified psychiatric pharmacists in the entire nation. There's over a thousand. I think there's like 1,100 or 1,200 now. I don't remember the, the current stat. But there's so few of us throughout the nation that when these jobs pop up for mental health, they prefer to have a psychiatric pharmacist fill the role. But since there's so few of us, they most often can also pull from someone who has the background who's not necessarily board certified. So you may have to be more creative and finding those avenues. But I believe that when there's a will, there's usually a way. <laughs> well, thank you for, uh, you know, for sharing all that advice. So mm -hmm. if people wanted to reach out to you, um, what's the best way that they can contact you? You can always reach me by email. Uh, my email address is wangindriani8 at gmail.com. So it's just my last name, W-A-N-G. And my first full name, it's I. N D R I A N I. So Indriani and then the number eight at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So I'll be putting that in the show notes and, uh, you know, to be respectful of your time, I'd like to thank you again for taking some time out of your busy day to be on the podcast. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot about your journey. Thank you. Hopefully it can help someone. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tony. 